Peter can't catch a break. It all began six days ago when Jesus asked him and the other disciples, who do you say that I am? Ever the star student and teacher's pet, St. Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one. And ever the confounding rabbi and sage, our Lord then expounds on the less glossy dimension of being the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one. He says that the Messiah must undergo profound suffering and rejection by the civil and religious establishment and rise again on the third day. Peter then rebukes Jesus. Yes, God incarnate, the pre-existing word, the bright and morning star, the one the prophets call the lily of the valley. Peter rebukes Jesus. And while we are not given Peter's exact words of rebuke, we can use our own imaginations to taste, hear, feel, smell the conflict. Perhaps Peter said, um, Rabbi, I'm not letting the last few years with you go to waste because of some martyr complex. <laughs> or, excuse me, maker of heaven and earth, but you're replaying some toxic mental tapes. Maybe a spa day in Capernaum or Ojo Caliente will help you calm down. <laughs> the exact words don't matter as much as the fact that our Lord's mission of getting to Jerusalem to confront the powers that be forced Peter to default to the powers that aren't. St. Peter, like notable figures throughout history, was deeply uncomfortable with a Christ whose path to victory, resurrection, and glory requires a detour at, yea, a pilgrimage to Calvary. St. Peter's discomfort with the cross is fundamentally a very natural discomfort with suffering. The German theologian Dorothy Sowell defines this phenomenon, a crossless Christianity, a Christianity allergic to Jesus' full range of humanity, as Christo-fascism. In 1990, she published a book called The Window of Vulnerability, wherein she coins the term, quote, Christofascism knows the cross only as a magical symbol of what he has done for us, not as the sign of the poor man who was tortured to death as a political criminal, like thousands today who stand up for his truth in El Salvador. This is 1990. This is a God without justice, a Jesus without a cross, an Easter without a cross. What remains is a metaphysical Easter bunny in front of the beautiful blue light of the television screen, a betrayal of the disappointed, a miracle weapon in service of the mighty, end quote. And notice that she says television screen and not smartphone screen. It is 1990, mind you. 
transfiguration in its original language is most proximate to the English word metamorphosis. Biblical linguists have poetically said that transfiguration is one's outward appearance aligning with one's inward reality. That which is inward and spiritual is becoming outward and visible, a sacrament of sorts. Transfiguration is a vision of people and things and the world as they truly are, of God as God always is, of ourselves as we always are, but can't necessarily perceive when we're writing grocery lists, being outraged on social media, putting out fires at home and work, caring for loved ones, mourning our dead, fighting for a sustainable planet, witnessing the travesties of war, and loving our living. And that's just before noon on Monday. Even though Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet of prophets, are always in God's realm, flanking Jesus, Transfiguration tears away the illusion that they are long dead and gone. And since we're on Moses and Elijah, it is worth noticing something not instantly obvious about them. Andrew McGowan, Dean of Berkeley Divinity School at Yale University says this about Mark's account of the transfiguration, quote, Moses and Elijah do represent the law and the prophets, as is often said, but their own mountaintop experiences, see Exodus 33 and 1 Kings 19, also involved rejection and misunderstanding. They are witnesses to the same glory of a God whose involvement in human life will often call us to struggle against what is expected. End quote. As you know from experiences, mountaintop experiences are not sustainable, are they? Passion and excitement and transfiguration often happen, at least in my life, unpredictably and with some scarcity. So this vision of a dazzling Jesus surrounded by figures of days of yore is a means of grace, a pure and gracious gift of God, the breaking open of the portal between God's world and ours by God, God's very self. But back to suffering. A line appears in Luke's transfiguration story that does not appear in Mark's. Two men, Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. Okay, that sounds familiar. Luke adds, They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem, that word departure in the original language is the word where we get our English word exodus. And Moses knew something about exodices, exoduses, <laughs> the exodus. Transfiguration is not only a grace in terms of divine vision, 
but it is a grace of divine consolation. As Jesus prepares himself and his disciples for his rejection and execution at Jerusalem, God appears to step into the picture, providing two companions who have survived challenges of their own. Isn't God faithful? Isn't God faithful? Have you ever been on the precipice of despair or on the cliff of anguish and a friend sends you a note? Or a stranger shows kindness to you in an unexpected way? Or the memory of a now deceased loved one floods your heart? That friend, that stranger, that long past loved one is your Moses and Elijah. They are that piece of music, that hike, that visit to the art museum, that long phone conversation that says, Jerusalem is your destination, but the third day is coming. And that seems to be where Peter can't quite catch a break. He stopped listening after Jesus said, the Messiah must undergo profound suffering and be rejected. He didn't listen long enough to hear, and after three days, rise again. This appears, in my humble opinion, to be God's prerogative in Christ. Assuming the finitude and fragility of created matter to suffer with and for and because of us, even to the point of death and then resurrecting that which has suffered. How exactly those resurrections look is as varied as the people and communities experiencing them. And if we don't have the imagination, the expansive, playful capaciousness to hold all that is possible with God, we might very well miss it. So if you're suffering today, despairing today, grieving today, I have two shards of good news for you. First, God not only didn't cause your suffering, God is suffering with you, despairing with you, grieving with you in Christ. And second, the third day is coming, so get ready for your resurrection. Amen.